the Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judged. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 50, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, May the 12th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. Uh, we're continuing to look at the Book of, of, of Wisdom of Solomon as one of the ways that it's known, and also it's all known as uh, or as Wisdom of Ben Sirah, and it's also known as Ecclesiasticus. I have no earthly idea which one is the right term. Um, the lectionary calls it Ecclesiasticus, but when you go try and look the book up, you'll find it not under Ecclesiasticus, but as the Wisdom. So it, I have no earthly idea. So anyway, it's... <laughs> Uh, the gospel is continuing in Luke 6, verses 39 to 49, and the epistle is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. So the first reading is pretty long, actually, but it, it's it's a continuation of the argument that's been going on already through this whole book so far, which is the wicked believe themselves to be... Um, the chosen ones at some level. I mean, they're not chosen by God, but they believe themselves to be right, and they believe these poor saps who are um, believers and righteous people to be nothing more than literally poor saps. And then they find out when they stand before the Lord, well, we were on the wrong side of history. We were dead wrong about what we thought. So here he begins this by speaking about them, those who have denied God. All those things have vanished like a shadow and like a rumor that passes by, like a ship that sails through the billowy water, and when it's passed, no trace can be found, nor track of its keel in the waves. Or, as when a bird flies through the air, no evidence of its passage is found, the light air, lashed by the beat of its pinion and pierced by the force of its rushing flight, is traversed by the movement of its wings, and afterward, no sign of its coming is found there, or, as when an arrow is shot at a target. The air, thus divided, comes together at once, so that no one knows its pathway. So we also, as soon as we were born, ceased to be, and we had no sign of virtue to show, but were consumed in our wickedness. So the, the argument that's piled up here with image after image is to say that, that the, those who are, who are non-believers, who are unrighteous, uh, are like all these things which... which Seems like sound and fury, as um, Shakespeare said, signifying nothing at the end. And, and it's that sort of reflection that uh, that uh, Shakespeare made uh, in that soliloquy with, uh, from Macbeth. And um, then we see here, it's the this is the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom is to see that that nothing matters if it's not eternal. And so those things that are eternal, those who believe, those who will have eternal life, their life actually ultimately has meaning. And they don't know the meaning of it. They can't see the meaning of it because sometimes it just feels like pain and suffering. However, in eternity, you'll see that your life indeed had meaning. It didn't just have meaning to you. It had meaning to God. And it had meaning to other people, whether you knew it or not. So your ministry, the, the, the work that you do, the things that you do to share the gospel, any of those kinds of things, all have meaning. And, and what he says is the rest of life, in some ways, has no meaning at all. 
the things that we set our stores by, the things that we think have meaning, ultimately have no meaning at all because all these things just pass away. And so um, the argument is is that, that they look like something from this perspective on this side of eternity, but on the other side of eternity, all their effort, all of everything they've done is gone, and it's meaningless. Because the hope of the ungodly man is like chaff carried by the wind, and like a light hoarfrost driven away by a storm. It's dispersed like smoke before the wind, and it passes like the remembrance of a guest who stays but a day. It's, he likes these images. And that's the, one of the reasons that, that you've got to believe that Solomon wrote this, because so much of what he's saying here is exactly what he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And so what he's, there's other ways to translate that, but the word for vanity there is hevel, which is Abel, the first one who died. And, and it seemed like he was just a vapor is the word, really, the best translation of it is vapor. But hevel and is the same as the name that we translate as Abel. So it could be translated there, Abel, Abel, all is Abel, but it wouldn't mean anything. And so what it does mean is, is like the breath on a cold day when you breathe out and that, that foggish looking thing comes out and it's gone immediately. And, and it's just, it's, it's like that vapor. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's using the same language and the same images for those who are unrighteous because what he's saying is, is that, that they don't have an eternal impact. Their lives are just gone at the end of the day. He's, and then in contrast to that, but the righteous live forever, and their reward is with the Lord. The Most High takes care of them. Therefore, they will receive a glorious crown and a beautiful diadem from the hand of the Lord, because with his right hand he will cover them, and with his arm he will shield them. And this is that's Psalm 91 imagery. The Lord will take his zeal as his holy whole armor, and his arm it will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He'll put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He'll take holiness as an invisible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword. Does all that sound like the armor of God that we that we see Paul writing about in Ephesians? I mean, I think Paul was familiar with this literature. There's no question he would have been familiar with it. And so he, he he's using some of those same images and then and then changing them to make them Christian. And so he, he's using the what what looks like the whole armor literally, of God here, because it's God's armor, and then he, he gives that same armor to us in Christ. So creation will join with him to fight against the madmen. Shafts of lightning will fly with true aim and will leap to the target as from a well-drawn bow, bow of clouds, and hailstones full of wrath will be hurled as from a catapult. The water of the sea will rage against them, and rivers will relentlessly overwhelm them. Now, where does he get that imagery? I mean, that that's all sort of... Um, Exodus plague imagery in all of that. And so that that creation will be called back into action again. And, and there's this, in, in all that, if you're familiar with Tolkien at all, you'll see the same thing. You'll see these same images when the trees get involved, for instance, in the battle, and then it turns the tide of the battle. But all of creation begins to participate. God calls it forth to participate in that, just as he did with Jonah. And then when Jesus stands in the boat and says, calm, be still, he speaks to the wind and the waves, and then they obey him. And so a mighty wind will rise against them, and like a tempest, it will winter them away. Lawlessness will lay waste the whole earth, and evildoing will overturn 
the thrones of rulers. Man, we're living in those times. But, you know, the reality, everybody has lived in those times. <laughs> There's always been wars and rumors of war. There's always been evil in the earth. It's part of our job. Part of the purpose of proclaiming the gospel is to extend God's kingdom on the earth. Do you want to live in God's kingdom? If you want to live in God's kingdom, then share the gospel. Share it with other people. It's the important thing. If we want the world to change, then the only way to change it is not through diplomacy. It's through the coming of God's kingdom. And so when we pray for the coming of God's kingdom in the Lord's Prayer, we need to also be acting for the coming of God's kingdom by proclaiming the gospel to all flesh. In the, in the gospel today, we get Jesus telling a couple of parables, and he's, he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that's exactly what the intention of the disciple-teacher relationship would be. Disciple-rabbi would be the correct terminology there. But, but it's this, a disciple's not above his teacher. When he's fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. The point of being discipled was to think, act, and be like your teacher. So you basically, you chose at some level you were chosen by your rabbi a rabbi but you might be chosen by more than one rabbi and so you would choose then which one you wanted to align yourself with and at this time there were two great schools of rabbinic thought and so you you would align yourself with one of those or the other and you were trained to think in a particular way depending on which school you were a part of one was more strict and one was Still solid, but but less strict in most cases. In some cases, the answer to that is no. Well, they're not there. So it, it's it's important when we choose a mentor, for instance, that that we choose wisely. And so what I'm pointing you to is not to choose me, but to choose him, to choose Jesus, and become like him. And that's what Paul says: join in imitating me, as I imitate him. And so that, that's the point of the disciple-teacher relationship, is, is to be trained to think, act, and be like that rabbi. What do you, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Because we're really good at that. You know, that's what I was talking about yesterday, is we're really good at seeing the problems in other people's lives and overlooking all the larger stuff in our own lives. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. I mean, I've certainly had people come to me and say things to me, and it's like, wow, do you want me to respond by helping you in the same way that you're helping me? Um, it's not wrong to point out things in somebody's life that need amendment, but it's also not wrong for other people to point that out to you. And so we do need to hear sometimes from other people because we do have blind spots in our lives where, where we're not aware that, that there's sin in our lives because we become so inured to it because it's so common in our lives. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I'll know who you are, but what you say. And, and there's, it's clearly true. 
I mean, it's exactly what James is getting at when he says, hey, keep, keep a good watch on your tongue and bridle that thing. Because that's when, I mean, you know, when I get upset, it's not always pretty, let's say. <laughs> and and, I, and, it, and it, it exposes something more than the anger of the moment in my life. And, and, and I need to be aware of and pay attention to that. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I, t- what I tell you? And that's a really good thing. There's a lot of us that want a Savior, but we don't want a Lord. <laughs> we don't want somebody that we have to be obedient to. We don't want somebody who will tell us what to do. We're perfectly happy to receive the gift that he offers of salvation, but we're not willing to follow him as Lord. You can't have it both ways. You can't have him as Savior and not have him as Lord. That's just the way it is. He's not your Savior unless he's your Lord. <clears throat> Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus never says, all you got to do is believe. Never, ever, ever does he say anything remotely like that. And Paul would never want you to believe that either. That's the whole point of of Romans 7 is the Holy Spirit's given to us in order that we can overcome the desires of the flesh. We can become like him through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and through us. Paul and Jesus neither have any uh, idea or, or understanding of a Christian, Christianity that doesn't, it, that doesn't show itself from faith to obedience. Neither one of them would, would even recognize somebody as a Christian or a believer who, who didn't have fruit in their lives, who, whose lives weren't being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. It's not just a matter of what you believe. It's not just a matter of what you intellectually assent to or, or had a moment with God and got baptized for. Nope. Nope. Listen to Paul here when he speaks to the Colossians on that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He is particularly speaking here about the Judaizers, those who will come and insist that they take on all this other stuff, and they're not good unless they, they take on all that other stuff. And he's not talking about here, this is the important thing, is it's not going to be a contradiction to what I just said to you, because he's not talking about being discipled and being like Jesus and changing your attitudes and changing the way that you act. Repenting of sin and repenting doesn't mean just confession. That's the first step is confession, because confessio means to agree with God on what's the nature of, of right and wrong, good and evil are. And so the the first step is agreeing with God, and then you prove that you agreed with God by turning away from it, and that's the word repentance. You turn away and you go in a different direction. He says, for in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's already said that same thing. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled in him by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And again and again, the, the um, prophets use this very image of the circumcision of the heart, a circumcision that's made without hands, a, a, a circumcision of the heart that, that, that also includes, I will write my words on their heart so that they'll keep it. <clears throat> 
you were baptized, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So the image of baptism is to be, and, and it gets attenuated, the meaning does, and it's hard to see when, when we do it the way we do it in, in our tradition typically, which is the, the little bit of water poured on. Um, in the Baptist ceremony, for instance, which also many other denominations use as well, but, but um, in the Baptist tradition, for instance, that the, the symbolism is powerful and it's obvious. <laughs> you have been buried with him in, in, in your baptism. So when you go down into the water, that's, that signifies the death of the old person, and coming out of the water signifies the new life in Christ. <clears throat> and you, who were dead in your trespass and the circum- uncircumcision of your flesh, so he's speaking specifically to Gentiles here, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And so what he's saying is, is that that... that you were before dead in trespasses and your uncircumcision. Because prior to Christ, the only way to, to get to eternal life was to be circumcised and to be part of the Jewish community. And he, Paul says, that's done away with. That part of it is done away with. Now he's made us alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You were dead. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And these he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the legal demand. The legal demand on the debt was that it be paid, and you're not able to pay it. And so these, though, he said, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jewish rulers. He, he triumphed over them and put them to open shame. By the resurrection. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Clearly, the only people he's talking about there are, are, are Judaizers. He said, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all the stuff that came before him was the shadow or foreshadowing of which he is the substance of those things. He's the fulfillment of all those things in himself. So you don't need all of them if you have him. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And that's what Paul's very clear always. When things grow, it's because God gave the growth. He said the problem is that when they do all these other things, they lose contact with the only source of life, with the head. When they, when they insist on all this other stuff. He said, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Because Christ opened up the dietary laws. We don't have to worry about all these things. Paul constantly is dealing with this issue because it's constantly being raised from outside. 
He says, don't don't submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings. Is he saying that the law wasn't the law? No, he says, Jesus has fulfilled the law, and you no longer are bound by those things. And in, in, in Galatians, he says the law was a pedagogue, which is a teacher. It's, it's somebody that, that you would, as a child, have been given to, to, to make sure, for that person to make sure that you were raised up the right way, that you became the kind of person your father and mother insisted that you be that you represent them well in the way they desire. And so you get a pedagogue, and the pedagogue gets you to a certain place, and then you're set free from the pedagogue because you've been fully trained. And that's what Jesus is talking about, about being fully trained like his teacher. So he becomes like his teacher. And that's the point of the law, was to get you to the point where you could see the fulfillment of the law and the fullness of the law, the fullness of the deity in Christ, and attach yourself to him and receive his Holy Spirit, that you might become like him from the inside out. He said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul talks about that war in Romans 7. The things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do, and the things that I, don't want, that I do want to do are the very things I can't do, because the flesh wins. So what is the triumphing over the flesh? It's the Spirit that's poured out at Pentecost but only made possible by the crucifixion and death of Jesus and the resurrection and the ascension. You need all of that in order to receive the Spirit. So, so in order for me to become like God and to receive His Spirit required the death of His Son. And so what we need to always remember is, is that everything else is self-made religion. If we want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, it doesn't mean that we grit our teeth and we fight against it and fight against it. No, we have the power of God within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we will rely on it and allow him to live in us and through us.